All right. Go ahead and grab a seat. Welcome to Sedaris. My friends call me Dave. You can call me Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. Excited to be here. The official start of fall. It's a time of transition in the city where people remember that they live in the city and come back and hang around in the city and guess where we are in the city. And so excited to connect with the people of our cities. Hopefully you are as well. If you're new, welcome again. So glad that you're here. Uh, Hopefully today what you experience is that this is a place where you can be known and belong and find true friendship. We'll talk about that as we go today. We're in our fourth week of a four-week mini-series we're calling The Habits of the Heart. This is slightly different than how we normally do our time of teaching at Sedaris. It is not starting with Uh, the Bible, which is what we normally do, and we'll start that again next week as we'll go back into the book of Acts and do the second half of the book of Acts, which is the beginning, uh, accounts the beginning of the Jesus movement. So we'll be back there, and and we like to preach passage by passage through the Bible. Uh, That tends to be our mode of operation here. Uh, But we're doing this mini-series, and we do it every year uh, because we think what we're talking about in the Habits of the Heart series will help us have better conversations bigger and better conversations in our city uh, with our friends, with our family, with our coworkers. Uh, we think that is a part of our mission here at Sedaris, to stir up conversation that the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ might rise up, uh, as Ryan talked about last week, like the good stuff at the bottom of a freckled lemonade, that, that the Jesus stuff would stir up just through normal conversation, but we're really bad at conversation. So as the church, we might be uh, leaders of this movement to, to have bigger, better conversations in our city, uh, but we know we need some help in that. So uh, we're doing this series based on this book called The Habits of the Heart, which is the collection of wisdom gained by secular researchers, all academics who wrote this book, sociologists, psychologists, philosophers, who did a multi-year project in which they interviewed over 200 individuals in America across all of the United States, and they came away with these insights to what is the American psyche in the sense of what are the habits of the heart, which are, what are the ways that we think about ourselves and being in this world, and um, this is deep, thick stuff if you've been with us. Uh, you realize it might feel even a bit like a college lecture. Um, And so thank you for sticking it out. But the reason we're giving you some of this raw data rather than platitudes is that we think that you're profound. We think that you're incredible thinkers. We think that you have the ability given to you by God to consider the great realities of our world and God's universe. And so we thought, let's just give it to them a little bit raw and let them wrestle with it. And so you've made it to the end of the series. One final a lecture, you could call this, and then we'll move back in. Not to platitudes, but we'll move back into our normal way of preaching through books of the Bible. Uh, so if you haven't been with us, hopefully I can give you a bit of a recap of where we've come, but I highly recommend going online or going to the app or going to the iTunes podcast and listening to the first three. It'll make way more sense of this final exclamation point on habits of the heart, but I've been excited by what we've uncovered so far. And what we've uncovered so far goes something like this. Uh, Since the founding of our nation, we have had uh, an intense individualistic nature about us as a people. We have taken hold of that individualism that was a part of the early Puritans and founders of our country, and we've run with it. 
And it has become untethered from the original constraints, the mores of traditional religion and Christianity that kept individualism from going astray. We have now become untethered, and we are living in a world of radical American individualism. And as the book says, it's an American sickness. And what we said is that each and every one of us are affected by this because each and every one of us was born into this world, into this way of thinking. And I told a story about my son, Grayson, and in, in myself, too. We have this shared story, me and my son, of being locked in a bathroom and not knowing how to get out. And radical individualisms like this bathroom that we're stuck in. Most of us don't even know that we're stuck in it. Most people that you'll meet on the street do not even realize they're in this particular bathroom with all these constraints, all these walls of only one way of seeing the world and understanding their existence. And our hope is that as we understand that all of us, just by being born into it and molded into it through entertainment and media and literature and film, all of this stuff, that we are just going in the direction that our culture has told us to go. Not by any fault of our own. Until somebody wakes us up, until somebody calls the fire department and they come and they break down the door and rescue little old Grayson and say, there's a way out. And we hope that by understanding this phenomenon, this reality that we all exist in, that we might be able to be more present, better listeners, better question askers, better empathizers within the conversations that God presents to us. That's our hope. Now, very quickly, let me recap weeks one to three. In week one, we said radical individualism might on the surface sound very different, and we looked at four individuals um, who were four types of people that the researchers found throughout their, their, uh, their, their over 200 interviews. They said there's kind of four archetypes. And at, at first glance, you say, oh, these are very different people. We have a successful business executive. Uh, we have a political activist. Uh, we sort of have your average Joe, community-involved, community nice guy. We have a, a professional therapist. But what, but what you realize when we dug a little bit deeper is that even though they sound very different or the things that they said fulfilled them or gave them pleasure that they enjoyed, they're very, very different. But underlying that is this radical individualism that says, I choose the things I involve myself in because it makes me feel good. Because it's what I like to do. And so we realize that they're all just motivated by this idea of individualism. And then in week two, we said this. We said, in order to figure out who we are in America, we feel like we have to extract ourselves from those things that we're not sure are a part of us because we think the self exists in some sort of a vacuum. And so we leave everything else behind in a hopes to find our true, unfiltered self. And so we do things like leave home. We leave church. We leave tradition, all in a hopes of finding myself. And in finding myself, what makes me feel good becomes my guide. 
Now, for some, the book will talk about, that might play itself out in more utilitarian individualism, which means I seek after personal gain for myself, perhaps through the accumulation of wealth or power or success. For others, it's expressive individualism. I seek after feeling good about myself by being me, by expressing who I am in the world. So I just want to read you a quote Um, We've been doing this, reading some quotes from the book. Uh, This is a good summary, and it's talking about um, how particularly through our entertainment and media, television, um, these ideas continually bombard us, okay? So so listen closely, read closely, and see if you uh, hear the individualism in this. It says this, uh, The culture of separation offers two forms of integration. Or should we say pseudo-integration? That turns out, not surprisingly, to be derived from utilitarian and expressive individualism. The first way of reintegrating because of our very isolated, separated culture, the first is the dream of personal success. As Gilton has observed, television shows us people who are, above all, consumed by ambition and the fear of ending up losers. That is the drama we can all identify with, at least all of us who have been exposed to middle-class values. Isolated in our efforts, though we are, we can at least recognize our fellows as followers of the same private dream. Keep going. The second way of reintegration in our world is the portrayal of a vivid personal feeling. Television is much more interested in how people feel than what they think. What they think might separate us, but how they feel draws us together. Successful television personalities and celebrities are those people able to freely communicate their emotional states. We feel that we really know them. And the very consumption goods the television so insistently puts before us integrate us by providing symbols of our version of the good life. But a strange sort of integration it is. For the world into which we are integrated is defined only by the spasmatic transition between striving and relaxing and is without qualitative distinction of time and space, good and evil, meaning and meaninglessness. And however much we may for a moment see something of ourselves in another, we really are, as Matthew Arnold said in 1852, in the sea of life in Isle, we mortal millions live alone. Now here's what uh, the authors are saying, that although the world tries to give us ways to reintegrate, to reintegrate, those ways ultimately leave us isolated. We might experience some form of integration based on, hey, we're all striving after personal success. We can at least all be in the race together. Or we can say, I felt like that. And so, at least in that sense, I see something of myself in another person's feeling. And the line in that quote that says, it's this spasmatic transition between a striving and relaxation. When I read that, I just, I mean, it cut, it cut me to the core. It's like, that's how I live. And I tell people I live that way. I say, if you meet me, I'm either sprinting or I'm sitting. So, so if you think, you know, if you think you want my job, you don't want my job. I've been sitting in this for probably over 80 hours <laughs> thinking about how I myself have, am trapped 
in some ways, in this bathroom of radical individualism, in this spasmodic transition between striving and relaxing. And that's where we find ourselves in America in 2018. Radical individuals striving and relaxing and striving and relaxing and trying to find that balance that fits perfectly into our idea of the good life. And we don't even know where that idea came from. So Ryan talked about last week how these ideas play themselves out in love and marriage. Great sermon. If you ever want to be in love or you ever want to be married, And if you don't, that's okay. You don't have to listen to that one. But what Ryan talked about is this idea of of rather than living as these individual entities, always striving and relaxing and trying to find that balance, what if, and this is what marriage paints as, as one picture of this, we become one flesh with another individual. And we become even this new creation, this thing that, that, that is, is not separate, that is united. So I just want to read you a quote that, that highlights this from last week uh, because we're going to jam on this idea here for a second. Put that up quote from page 110. Uh, they said this. They said, We found through our hundreds of interviews, while the evangelical Christians welcomed the idea of sacrifice as an expression of Christian love, many others were uncomfortable with the idea. It was not that they were unwilling to, to make compromises or sacrifices for their spouses, but they were troubled by the ideal of self-denial that the term sacrifice implied. If you really wanted to do something for the person you love, they said, it would not be a sacrifice, since the only measure of good is what is good for the self. Something that is really a burden to the self cannot be part of love. Rather, if one is in touch with one's true feelings, one will do something for one's beloved only if one really wants to. And then, by definition, it cannot be sacrifice. Without a wider set of cultural traditions, then, it was hard for people to find a way to say why genuine attachment to others might require the risk of hurt, loss, or sacrifice. They clung to an optimistic view in which love might require hard work, but could never create real cost to the self. They tended instead to believe that therapeutic work on the self could turn what some might regard as sacrifices into freely chosen benefits. What proved most elusive to our respondents and what remains most poignantly difficult in the wider American culture are ways of understanding the world that could overcome the sharp distinction between self and other. Now do you hear even the way you think in that? This is the way the majority of us as Americans think about love. How could sacrifice be good if it's not good for the self? So I need to even rework what I think is sacrifice in order that I can freely choose as a benefit to me. It makes love and marriage relationship very difficult. Let me read one more quote here. They go on to say this, page 111, 112. Do we have that quote, L? Maybe we don't have that quote. Okay. Let me tell you what that quote says. <laughs> Memorize the quote. Uh, <laughs> the quote says this. Well, the quote doesn't say this. The authors say this. <laughs> and they say this. They say, 
Uh, basically what happens in our world then, and this was actually predicted by uh, a guy named Alexis de Tocqueville, who's a French sociologist who came to America in 1850 and saw the beginnings of individualism and wrote about it. Um, basically what uh, the authors say is that what happens in America is that because we realize we can't truly live isolated by ourselves, we tend to make the marriage or the family unit the ideal state. And so we separate from the larger mass of human beings that we coexist with, and we go and we take care of our own. Have you heard this? Have you said this? I have. I take care of my own. I got to focus on my family unit. Those are my people. And he says that, and the authors say that it is so isolating that altruism now is only found in the family union. I only have so much altruism as to give it to my family. And Tocqueville actually predicted that this is where individualism would lead. He, he predicted this over 150 years ago. And I find that to be very true. It's this family-only altruism, which is taking care of my own. And so maybe I can take care of my spouse. Maybe I can take care of my, ch my own children. Maybe, maybe I have this uh, affinity to help out my sisters and my brothers biologically. And here's what this raises. If it wasn't raising the question in your head, well, what if I'm single? What if I'm divorced? What if I'm a widow or a widower? What if I'm an orphan? What if I live far from home? Am I now outside the possibility of altruism because I have no biological family near to me, to care for me, to love me? Am I doomed to isolation and loneliness? I think if you talk to many people in our city who fall into many of these categories, they would have to conclude, yes, they're doomed. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says, no, never, because there is another family, a bigger family, a family of every tongue, tribe, nation, lifestyle, socioeconomic class, educational level. It's the family of God. It's the heavenly body, the assembly of our Lord Jesus Christ living here and now in Seattle. You don't have to be isolated from altruism and care and love and good. It is available to you. And so whether you're married or not married, whether you have family near or far, everyone has a chance for a type of one flesh union, an interdependent vital relationship. Similar to marriage, where there's real dependence on each other, fostered and encouraged. And as we'll see today, it becomes the way out of radical American individualism. And it walks us out through profound friendship, citizenship, and kinship through our Lord Jesus Christ where we are actually living lives together, dependent. Not, not, not pretending to be dependent on one another, but actually dependent. 
to the point that if somebody's called away or somebody is sent away, that there is real breaking of a bond that's not superficial, but is real and hurts and it stings and tears come. That's what our hope is for this church, for every family of God assembled in a local congregation. And it's the way out. Before we get to the specifics of of this profound interdependence through friendship and citizenship and kinship, I want to, for a second, save individualism. We've been pretty hard on individualism for the last three weeks. Um, But I want to save it here. I want to save it because there's good parts. The good parts go like this. Every person, every individual does matter. Every individual is uniquely and wonderfully made. The self is a real construct. It, it, is, it is not an illusion. You see, other world religions like Buddhism, Hinduism would say the self is an illusion. You have to lose the self. No, the self is a real construct. But what is the self and how do we discover it and, and, and what is it for? These, these are where we need profound redefinition. But it is unique and wonderfully made by God. Scripture tells us that. Every individual has a specific way in which he or she can bring glory to their creator. Individual way. Moreover, we worship an individual God. One God and three persons. We talked about that two weeks ago. One God, though. An individual, personal God. And guess what? Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who came and died in our place and rose from the grave and who now rules over all things, he was the ideal individual. We strive to be like him, an individual. Okay? So you see, individualism is not wrong. It's not bad. But individuals have more than just feelings, more more than just opinions on happiness. There's so much more to being an individual than that. There's so much more to to good individualism. Individuals have responsibility and duties and purposes apart from themselves that exist apart from them that they must discover and then live out. Individuals are more than just ideas. Individuals are more than just parts of government, parts of a nation, parts of a society. They're more than just parts of corporations or parts of causes. And they have responsibility to more than ideas and governments and nations and corporations and causes. They have responsibility to other individuals. Governments don't suffer. Corporations don't suffer. Ideas and philosophies don't suffer. Individuals suffer. And so Jesus showed us the way to salvage individualism is not by collectivism, but it's by outward-focused individualism meaning that it is not my individualism that matters most, but the individual that is my fellow man. Jesus said this. He said, I came to seek and to save the lost. And he's talking about lost individuals. And this, this um, quote in the Bible comes in Luke chapter 19, right after the story he tells, uh, the, the, the gospel of Luke tells about Zacchaeus who is a a bad man, 
Nobody likes him. He's alone. He's isolated because he's a sinner. He's caused the problem for himself, and Jesus calls him forward, and he talks to him, and he loves him as an individual, and he goes and he eats at his house, and Jesus gets ridiculed for it because Zacchaeus, he's not one of us. And Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost, each and every individual. We see the same idea in another story in the Gospel of Luke, the parable of the lost sheep, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And if one of my sheep goes astray, I leave the 99 and I go after the one individual. We too, like Jesus, need to seek out suffering individuals and love them as individuals. They are the ones that are suffering. The real widow suffers. The real slave suffers. The real orphan suffers. The real sinner who suffers the bondage of sin, that is who we go to seek and love and care for. Each and every individual who cries out loud for God's saving mercy, God will respond and rescue. So individualism rightly understood and applied is not negative. It is God's way. But it is never internalize, isolate, self-center, self-absorb. It's always externalize, incorporate, be other-centric, give of yourself. It's an outward-focused individualism that sees other individuals and loves them. So you are an individual. You are an individual, and what is your individualism for? What is the purpose of you? To be used by God to seek and enter into individual sufferings of other individual sufferers. The mission of Sedaris is to make you missionaries. And the best kind of missionaries are always those who seek out individual suffering. Now the good news is you are not God. You are not responsible for every individual sufferer in our city or around the world. But God will put individuals in your path in this life that you are responsible to. You need to be praying, God, show me the suffering in my world. Show me how you want me to actually help people. That's the story of the Good Samaritan. Who are those people? Now, now if, if you're hearing this and you're saying, I, I don't know how often I do that. I don't know how often I seek out the individual sufferer and help. I think, I think again, you've been taught not to do this. You've been this way your whole life. And unless you learn another way, you'll just keep living this way. I, I had this happen this week. I saw this on full display. Our son Grayson started pre-preschool, and um, he's three years old. So I guess to do it for a couple years, hopefully not three or four, but he'll do it until he finishes, he completes. And um, it was kind of a sad story. We went to pick him up from school the other day, and we saw him. It was uh, recess time, and he was sitting outside amongst all the kids, but he was by himself, and he has a hood on. He's just sitting there by himself. And, it, you know, as a parent, you're just cut to the core. And um, 
You say, well, why didn't anybody see that he's suffering? Why didn't these other kids come over and invite him in? But you, but you can't really be mad. There are other three-year-olds, right? They don't, they don't know how to see suffering and invite someone. They don't know it. They only know how to seek themselves. So, see, let them off the hook. I'm not three years old. You're not three years old. You don't have that excuse. God has called you to seek out the individual sufferer and invite them into life and goodness and community and wholeness. But yet, if we're honest, the same playground exists for me 33 years later. I cannot, it's so hard for me to not think of myself in this moment. And I see people alone and suffering, and I don't go and invite them to life. What's wrong with me? I'm stuck. I'm stuck in the bathroom of radical individualism. It can be redeemed. It can be repurposed for God's kingdom. It is his plan to send each individual out to seek and to save the individual sufferer. And it seems to me that the barrier to this redemption and this repurposing is an idea and a word, discomfort. Why do we run and hide in the bathroom in the first place? Discomfort. Why do we stay and board up the windows and the doors in our own selfhood, in our lifestyle enclaves, like we talked about two weeks ago, in our nuclear families, to never let discomfort back in the door? Why do we nervously accumulate wealth and goods and status and power to make it impossible that we might be at the mercy of discomfort? And so I'm constantly, even subconsciously, always thinking about not what is true and good and real and right in the world. I'm always thinking about what I am feeling. Because discomfort has become my great enemy. And so now that my feelings are king and they rule over my life, I enter into a series of economic exchanges with my world of getting and giving in order that I might find comfort to the max. And the authors of the book call this therapeutic contractualism. It's therapeutic because it's feelings-based. It's contractualism because it's economic exchange. I'm going to read you a quote. Man, this light always comes in during the best quotes. Okay, so you can't read it. Listen close if you can't read it. Okay. In our describing the culture of therapy, not, not therapy as a practice of a way of helping people uh, work through things. This is a culture of therapy, of the therapeutic culture. In describing our culture of therapy as a process of self-clarification that interprets commitments in terms of personal choice and interpersonal agreement. Its practitioners stress the primary importance of knowing how you are feeling. As you saw in chapter 3, that's talk number 2, uh, if you want to go back and listen to that, the larger uh, enterprise 
of self-identification that enables individuals to fulfill themselves and to relate effectively to others depends on this first step, which is knowing how you are feeling, okay? This therapeutic view not only refuses to take a moral stand, it actively distrusts morality and sees therapeutic contractualism as a more adequate framework for viewing human action. During an interview, a seasoned therapist sketched the transition from morality to its therapeutic successor. Morality begins with picking up values from parents, authority, authority figures, or important significant others, from religion and school and from law and mores or whatever. It continues by incorporating those values into how I should be, operating out of that, finding out what the result is that goes with those kinds of expectations. Then a turning point may emerge if and when the expectations don't pan out. Then they begin saying, what happened? Why didn't this pan out? Why didn't I get orange blossoms and rosebuds? Because I was good. Therapy advances the line of questioning, and it helps clients reformulate their outlooks in different terms. At that point, they begin to develop values on the basis of wishes and wants, what they're willing to give to get it, and what they're not willing to give to get it. Establishing a perception of the world that has more to do with how things work rather than how they ought to work, and doing some basic experimenting. The question, is this right or wrong, becomes, is this going to work for me now? Individuals must answer it in light of their own wants. The workings of the world are best seen in terms of the cost it exacts in the getting of, I think that got cut off, in the getting of things that satisfy us. You hear it? You hear feelings-based economic exchanges. Does that make sense? What, and I make this up, okay? Nobody trusts pastors. This is from sociologists, academics, okay? This is therapeutic contractualism. We used to just learn something true, believe it, but now we are taught we have to test everything out. If it's not working for you, try something new based on your wishes and your wants, based on how it makes you feel. You hear the giving and the getting? What would I have to give up to get what I want? This is, this is economics. This is economic exchange in the world of morality, and it leads to no morality. It leads to everybody doing what they see fit in their own eyes, what makes them feel good in every situation. It is, it is incredibly short-term thinking, not long-term thinking. Do you hear yourself in that? Do you hear people you know in that? Do you feel how many calculations you have to do at every second of every moment to decide what to do and what to not do? Are you tired? We're all born into this way of navigating the world. We were taught it. Are you tired of fighting for your comfort? Of making all of these economic exchanges, these getting and, and giving, the roller coaster of feelings that change at every moment? Are you tired of it? I'll tell you what, what they found in the research is that everybody was tired of it. Here's one quote. By its own logic, a purely contractual ethic leaves every commitment unstable. Parties to a contract remain free to choose and thus free to remake or break every commitment if only they are willing to pay the price for doing so. One interviewee said this, commitments take work and we are tired of working. When I come home from work, the last thing I want to do, you know, is for people to sit down and say, well, let's sit and work on our relationship. Let's talk about it. Yes, but I worked eight and a half hours today, you know. Let's just sit down and watch the television. People are tired of this kind of game. 
They rightly realize that long-term relationships and interdependence take work, particularly if you see the world in a therapeutic, contractual way. And so they will and have, time and time again, isolated themselves. We've isolated ourselves. And we do it in hope of relieving, relieving our discomfort. We're just so tired. We just want to be comfortable. We find ourselves here in this matrix, so to speak, in this matrix. Now, I'm going to make an illustration based on a movie that was popular when I was in college called The Matrix. <laughs> I don't know how many of you have seen it. Can I just get a show of hands? How many people have seen The Matrix? Okay. Praise be to God. Okay. If you haven't seen The Matrix, ask one of those many people to explain this analogy to you, okay? But here's where we found ourselves. Three type of people in the world today. The first is totally unaware that they are in the bathroom. They are isolated, but they're probably doing okay, reducing their discomforts and maximizing their pleasures. Do you know which kind of person I'm talking about from the movie? They don't even realize they're in the matrix, that they're plugged into a computer. And they're okay with it. Then there's you all. And I apologize. Ryan and I have been your Morpheus. <laughs> we have told you the truth. That you're stuck in radical individualism. That you're stuck in the bathroom. That the door is locked. That you didn't put yourself there. Somebody else did. And we've opened your eyes. And we've created for you a real discomfort. And I apologize. No, I don't. But I've made you discomfort. Hopefully you're feeling a bit discomfort because you are living, most of us, still in this world of radical individualism. But we've offered you two pills, the red and the blue. One pill, you can take it, and it'll send you back into the bathroom. You'll be completely isolated again, and you can go into this routine of seeking comfort, removing discomfort, and the pill will, you'll forget that we ever talked about this. Most people forget our sermons anyhow, so you'll just forget it. It'll be fine. The other pill actually takes you further down the rabbit hole, and it takes you into the real world. And guess what I'm not promising you? That if you step out of the bathroom, that you will find all the comfort you've ever longed for. In fact, you will experience more discomfort than ever before. And there are some of you who have taken, is it the red pill or the blue pill? I forgot. Let's say it's the red pill. That, that some of you have taken it and you've walked out the bathroom and you're living this life, eyes wide open, aware of the, of the discomfort all around you, and you're living the way of Jesus. Jesus did not live a comfortable life. He lived the ultimate life of discomfort. He was rejected by those he loved. He was abandoned. He was ultimately hung on a cross. Godly, good, Jesus-like individualism that we've talked about is teeming with discomfort because it is an act of defiance against the currents of therapeutic contractualism in our world, and it will leave you like never before discomforted. It is way more discomforting than being locked in the bathroom. 
ignorant of the realities of suffering and heartache and loneliness and emptiness in the world around you. But your eyes will be open. And you might have a chance to fulfill your God-given purpose and meaning in this world. But it's your choice. And if you choose to follow it, I'm going to tell you how to enter into new habits of the heart. Because the old habits of the heart, the habits they talk about here, these are broken. But what are the new habits? Like Jesus, we must embrace discomfort. Like the apostles, we must embrace discomfort. Like every Christian that has lived since, every true Jesus-following Christian we have embraced, who has embraced discomfort, you must embrace discomfort. And here are four ways that you embrace it. The first is to embrace the reality that you are a son or a daughter of God. See how discomforting that is? How uncomfortable? It's uncomfortable to be a son or a daughter, right? Because our parents will ask of us things. They will ask us to obey, to do things we don't want to do. But the way of Jesus is to accept the reality that God has adopted you by the blood of his son into his family and you are now a child of God. You see how that's uncomfortable and beautiful at the same time. It also includes the way we relate to our fellow Christians in very uncomfortable ways, the ways of kinship. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. You see how uncomfortable that is? Because you know what you don't get to do with your brothers and sisters? Swap them out for new ones. That's the beauty of it, and that's the discomfort of it. Whoever your siblings are will always be your siblings. Now, you can move away from them. You can pretend they don't exist. You'll see them again at that old family reunion. You can't get away from them, and it's uncomfortable, and it's beautiful. It's going to change the way you relate in this city, in the nation, and in our world. And it's uncomfortable because the Bible is going to call you a citizen of earth and a citizen of heaven. You are called to be a citizen. And citizens don't get to just check out. You see, we do this all the time in the way we are citizens. We tend to, to, to enclave in our private lives and keep all the dirty, uh, uncomfortable people out until some sort of public policy or vote or whatever presses in on us, and then we get involved. And we get involved only to keep our comfort as we have come to know it, to protect our own, to protect our way of life. That's the way we do citizenship, and the Bible says that is not what citizenship is. It's saying you are all in this together. Now the beauty of our dual citizenship goes like this. And it is the only way to do citizenship right in this life. It is to say this. I am a citizen of Seattle, of America. I have responsibilities in this life. Jesus said, bring my kingdom as it is in heaven. And I try to do that and I work for that and I work for the common good and I, and I, and I sacrifice for my fellow citizens 
while all the time knowing that I can never turn this world into heaven. Only Jesus can do that. And so I live into the discomfort while always knowing that this is not my final citizenship. The Bible talks about this, that our citizenship is in heaven, that we know we have a home there. And so we fight tooth and nail to bring kingdom here, realizing always that we'll always come up slightly short of that, apart from the return and the restoration of all things by our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? It's a different way of doing citizenship. It's not detached. It's fully engaged, but with a realization that it will be uncomfortable all the while. Finally, we need a new habit of the heart in the way that we do friendship. And the way that we need to do friendship will be very uncomfortable. Uh, The traditional view of friendship, when we say friendship, and and I think it's the view that Jesus had in mind when he, Jesus said, I am your friend. It's, a, it, uh, it's from Aristotle. We get it from Aristotle, and it has three categories. Friends should enjoy one another's company. Friends uh, should be useful to one another. And friends should share common commitments to the good. You could call that common moral commitments. And if you think about the way you do friendship, you probably do it pretty much with just the first, the, the, the first notion there. We enjoy one another's company. So as long as we enjoy one another's company, we're friends. That is not the traditional view of friendship. That is not the view of friendship that Jesus had when he said, I am your friend. We need to do friendship in a new way. And it's a way that includes all of these. We must enjoy one another, be useful to one another, and share these common moral commitments. That's actually the bond of friendship that makes it true friendship. And I lament the fact that there's often friendships that I wish could go to this level that can't because we do not share common commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the ways of Jesus, to the truths of this world, to the moral commitments of the Bible. It's sad, but this is true friendship. And if we can learn to do friendship in a better way, we will learn that it is beautiful, and we'll learn that it's really uncomfortable. These are the ways of the people of God. And if you've never experienced this in a church, we want you to experience this here. We want you to have true friendship here at Sedaris. We want you to have true brothers and sisters in Christ. We want you to be sons and daughters of God. And so we're going to, starting November 17th, we're going to have our first, what we're calling, family member covenant class, which is a day long on Saturday to talk about more in depth what does it mean to participate in a family like this? What does it mean to break out of our radical individualism and participate in a community in which we have real kinship, real citizenship, real friendship? And what are those bonds that hold us together. So that's coming up November 17th, Family Members Covenant class. We'll talk about it a lot more before then. But we're doing that because we realize this is so foreign to us. This is so countercultural to think in these ways. But it's so much more beautiful than the way we're doing it now. Let me say this very clearly. We don't do any of this because it makes us feel good. 
Not because we, f- we like the feeling of being in this kind of community. We do this because we believe this is true. We believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe that God became man and dwelt among us and went voluntarily to the cross to die for our sin and that he rose again, truly rose in space-time history from the grave and said, gather together and worship in this way to bring glory to my name. We believe it's true. That's why we do all of this. Now, if you want to cultivate these new habits of the heart, I'm going to give you really tangible. So if you're taking notes, write down these tangible ways and even jot down things that come into your mind. How do I cultivate these new habits of the heart, of kinship, citizenship, friendship? Here's what I want you to do. One, enter into the suffering of another individual. See their suffering and enter into it and serve them. The second Do something that you know is good and right and true when you don't feel like doing it and when you know that there is no clear gain in it for you. Don't just do it when you want to do it. Do it when you don't feel like doing it. Third, get coffee, lunch, drinks, with someone at Sedaris that you don't think you have anything in common with. The person that comes into your mind when I say this statement, ask them to get coffee. If I weren't sharing a common commitment to Christ or the mission of Sedaris Church, I'd never be friends with this person. Who pops into your head? Write them down. Who popped in? I want you right now, after the service, go ask, hey, we should get drinks sometime. (laughs) Now, if somebody comes to you and says that, don't assume you're the person they thought of, okay? Maybe, maybe just give it a day. <laughs> okay. okay. And finally, uh, the fourth is come to this family covenant class to learn more about relating in these ways. Um, I think it's the way out. They, they don't propose that in this book as the way out. I think it's the only way out. I think it's the only way out to truly understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and live the implications of that through kinship, citizenship, and friendship. Let's pray. Father God, we're so, we're so thankful that we aren't alone, that you have not left us by ourselves, that we are invited into the family of God that we can have real interdependent relationships in your family, that we can be known and know others in a meaningful, life-altering, kingdom-expanding way. God, I pray now that you would break in our hearts the old habits, the habits of radical individualism, that have so crusted over the beautiful wonder of self-giving, sacrificial love that is buried deep in our DNA because we're created in your image and you've done that for us. Break open our hearts and teach us a new way. Give us new habits. 
God, so that people might find life in this world, but more importantly, that you might receive glory and honor and praise as the one who holds it all together and who gave everything to make it possible through your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.